Well, good morning, King's Church. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to the welcome you've already received. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I've got the privilege of speaking to you this morning. So um, really looking forward to that. And um, as Philip said, we're coming towards the end now of our Ask London series. It's been tremendous, I think, uh, really helpful. And um, what we've done is we've gone out, we've asked our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours, our family, what are the questions that you'd ask God? Have you got any objections to the God of the Bible? Um, If you could have a one-to-one with God, what would you ask him? And we've got some fantastic questions coming out of that. So we're going to roll the tape, see what comes up today and see how we get on. I think it just gives it gives people the sense that they have the right to treat people badly um, because they feel empowered or righteous about something. Mm-hmm. So working on the Falls Road and then going to the Shanklin Road and seeing the different flags and all that sort of stuff and knowing how Catholics were sort of repressed and badly treated in uh, Northern Ireland and it just... And that's just one example of loads of times that that's happened in different places all over the world. That feeling like you're part of a big gang mm. um, that um, le- lends itself to people feeling like they can bully other people. Mm. Jesus preached about love and uh, this kind of thing, and yet people use their religion as a means of thinking that other people are worse than them or they shouldn't have the same rights as people. Wow. Heavy duty stuff, isn't it? That's cool. (laughs) I need to pray, I think. (laughs) Let's just pray. Lord, we just thank you um, for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. Thank you for your perspective. Thank you that you broke into history. And um, Lord, I thank you for these dear ones that have raised these um, courageous questions, Lord. We say, please, Lord, we want to hear from you on these topics. We want to hear from you. Speak to our heart this morning, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. Give us clarity and wisdom and understanding. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, again, just want to say a big thank you to the folks that have been brave enough to um, give us their questions. Um, it's no small thing, I think, to stand up and um, be counted in that way. Um, so thanks to those guys on the, on, the, on the screen there. So what did we hear? We heard that um, people treat others badly in the name of religion. We heard that religion means that you can really go after whatever you want. Really, You can use that as a banner and really pursue whatever ends you've got in mind. We heard that religion oppresses others. People oppress others in the name of religion. People bully other people in the name of religion. Gosh. Well, we know about 9-11, don't we? We all know about 9-11. I don't need to explain what that is. On 9-12, an interesting thing happened the next day. In response to 9-11, a chap called Sam Harris started writing a book titled The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. And in this book, Sam Harris said, the most prolific source of violence in our history is religion and faith. They're the main causes of conflict and violence and war. So if only we could abandon religion, most wars would cease, was his argument. 
And that idea has been echoed by other authors of that same kind of ilk, that same genre. So you think of people like Richard Dawkins, if that name means anything to you, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, those kind of people. And that work has been very, very widely spread, and it's in the media, and those messages have kind of come out really on the back of things to do with 9-11 and all the kind of actions that have happened since then. So it's been quite a fertile ground for those messages, I think. And I think some of the comments we saw in that video were kind of coming out of that way of thinking. And so I want to take the liberty of kind of extrapolating those ideas and kind of fast-forwarding to the logical conclusion, I think. So if you, if you go down the road of treating other people badly, bullying them, oppressing them, using religious, religion as a banner to get whatever you want anyway, I think the ultimate expression of that is war. And so I want to pick up on the idea that's coming out of those authors, pick up on the ideas in that video and go, does religion cause war? And if it does, what are we going to do about it? So that's the title of today's talk. Religion causes conflict and violence and war and oppression and hatred and bullying. What on earth can we do about it? So how appropriate that we're looking at that question today. Um, as we've said already, Remembrance Sunday. This is the day when we, we stop and we reflect and we remember the contribution that servicemen and women have made, really focusing on the First World War, the Second World War and since then, and um, tying into that whole idea. So if we can get the next picture up. <laughs> love it, love it, love this picture. Um, this is a picture very dear to my heart, actually. Um, so that in the middle is my mum, that's Peggy, Peggy McArdle. Well, she was Peggy McConnell then, actually, um, before she got married. Um, and on the back, that's her brother, Alan, and on the front, that's her oldest brother, Stan. So my mum was born in 1929. not sure when this picture was taken, but, I mean, I'm guessing, what, she's about 10 there, would you say? Something like that. So this is mid to late 30s. Not quite sure when. And the, the, the brothers are a couple of years older than she is, two and two years older. So, you know, that kind of puts their ages in perspective. And um, I love it because, you know, you look at it and you think, just a normal family photo, really, just like fun kids, probably up to mischief. Goodness knows what they're doing. You know, they look like urchins, don't they? Kind of raggy shoes and, you know, goodness knows what's happening there. But you, you're wrapped up in that, you know, dreams, aspirations, hopes. I just love it. Such a precious picture for me. Because, you know, within, within a couple of years of that, those boys, those children, lied about their age and signed up in the RAF and went to war. They were kids. They went to war. And um, bless him, Alan at the back um, was, um, was in a Lancaster bomber and um, flew many, many um, sorties. But sadly, one time they were taken off Something went wrong. The plane went into flames. He was terribly badly burned. You may have seen on the TV recently, the Duke of Edinburgh opened a thing to do with the so-called guinea pig club. Well, the guinea pig club were the, the young men, most, I think they were all men, out of the Second World War, on whom plastic surgery was kind of tried for the first time. So my Uncle Alan lost all his fingers, lost an eye, lost both his ears, lost his nose, lost all his hair, massively burned all over. Reconstructive surgery like you wouldn't imagine had this face kind of botched together. And, you know, that was his life then. And he had a shortened life expectancy because of all that. Just awful. Awful. I'll hold this together, don't worry. And that's Al. So Stan. So Alan was the lucky one. Stanley didn't come home. Stan, Stanley flew on a, a sortie. 
shot down over Germany, didn't come home, that was that. So in one family, you've got one death, one maimed life, one family ripped apart by war. But that's just one example of what war does. That's the stock in trade of war. That's what we're dealing with. Multiply that by millions and millions. This is a big question. If anyone says they can solve war, wow, you've got my attention. (sighs) Tell me all about it. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what these guys say. Dawkins, Hitchens, Dennett and Harris. And really now culture, popular culture says, just solve that religion thing and we'll sort war out. Well, yeah, come on, let's have a look at this question. Bring it on. So we're going to do this in four stages today. We're going to ask the question, first of all, does religion cause war? Second question, does irreligion cause war? Third question, does anything else cause war? (laughs) You can see where I'm going, can't you? Fourth question, what can we do about it? Okay, let's get into it then. So first question, does religion cause war? Well, that's an easy question, isn't it? Yes, religion causes war. You don't, need to be a, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to spot that. Look at the BBC website today. I guarantee there'll be something on there about some religious war. Look at the newspapers. Turn on the telly. You know, we've got ISIS all over the news. We've got Boko Haram. We've got the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Take your, take your pick. Look at history. You go, well, we've got the Crusades. So in the 12th century, roughly, um, that, was, that was a campaign with the stated aim of recovering the Holy Land from Muslim invaders. Look at the Spanish Inquisition, originally set up to find and punish converted Jews who weren't sincere in their Catholicism. What about the French Wars of Religion? Succession of wars between the Catholics and Protestant Huguenots. What about the Thirty Years' War? Again, into about the 17th century now. Catholics and Protestants in the area that's now Germany. What about Northern Ireland? I remember that well when that was all kicking off. What about Yugoslavia in the, in the 90s? The list goes on. That's a long list. It certainly looks like religion, and particularly Christianity, have had a, a major um, hand to play in conflicts and wars throughout the 2,000 years history of Christianity. But let's look at some of those, some of those um, stats behind that. Let's look at some of the data. See, interestingly, in 2013, just a couple of years ago, Richard Dawkins was writing, and, and he said again, he said, if religion were abolished, there would be a much better chance of no more war. In the same year, 2013, the Institute of Economics and Peace did a study looking at all the wars that were ongoing in that year. And um, they found 35 major armed conflicts in the, in, the, in the world that year. And they studied those 35. And they said, do you know what? Each one of those 35 wars has got multiple causes. So it's never as simple to go, there's a sing- single simple cause behind, a, behind something like this. So each one of them has got multiple causes. And in fact, only five of the 35, that's 14%, only five of the 35 had religion as a main cause, one of the main causes of war. So actually, in 2013, when Richard Dawkins was writing, if religion were abolished, there'd be a much better chance of no more war, it might have been more reasonable to say, if religion were abolished, at the moment, most of the wars would pretty well carry on regardless. Which is a bit of a different angle on it, isn't it? bit of a different angle. But actually, that's just a snapshot, 2013. What does that tell us, really? Well, there's a book called The Encyclopedia of War 
by um, Phillips and Axelrod, published in 2008. And they did a much wider study. They looked at 1,700, 1,763, the main 1,763 wars that have ever happened over, over history, the, as, as far as we know it. They found that 123 were actually religious in nature. Now, that's a staggeringly big number. You think of how many families are ripped apart in those wars. So that's a serious matter, but it's only 7% of the total. So the research is telling us something different from what the popular authors are telling us, and telling us something different from what popular culture is, is telling us about this. I think it's also worth bearing in mind that, well, I don't know anybody, I'm, I'm sure you don't, I don't know anybody who condones violence and war and bullying and this kind of stuff. I don't know anybody that thinks conflict in the name of Christianity is a good idea. I've known people of, I've known lots of Christians over the years. I've known plenty of people of other faiths. As far as I know, everyone thinks this stuff's appalling. I mean, obviously some people don't, because, you know, some young men put on suicide vests and go out and blow things up. You know, on the streets of Northern Ireland, some Catholics and Protestants are prepared to shoot at each other. So not, not everybody agrees with that. But as far as I know, the vast majority of people of these faiths think this is an appalling way to carry on. So I think we've got to be careful that we don't judge religion by just looking at a few extremists. Don't judge mainstream by looking at extremists. You know, if I turn on the TV and I see um, a load of Christians somewhere outside an abortion clinic with placards that say, God hates people who have abortions, or we look at a gay pride march and people are going, yeah, God hates homosexuals. You know, I know, I know that that's not reflecting the Jesus of the Bible, but I'm not about to write off an entire people group based on the behaviour of a handful of people. That's not reasonable. So let's not, let's not take extremists and think that that represents the whole, that represents mainstream. I mean, just to be clear again, you know, religion is guilty as charged. There's been so much suffering in the name of religion, and particularly in the name of Christianity over the years. It's just plain wrong. We know that. But it doesn't appear to be true that if we get rid of religion, most wars would cease. Religion's implicated, but it's not the main cause, I think. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. The fact that religion isn't guilty, isn't as guilty as we thought, doesn't make it okay. That's no defence, really, is it? You know? If religious wars only killed one person or maimed one person, or tore one family apart, it would stand guilty. And we've seen it actually does much, much worse than that. So, okay, does religion cause wars? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's clear. Does irreligion cause wars? So what's irreligion? What do I mean by that? Well, it's defined as the absence, the indifference, the rejection of, or hostility towards religion. And I think... A cursory glance at that would say, yep, irreligion causes wars as well. It's not just religious ideology that's the problem. State-imposed atheism was a defining feature of the brutal 20th century regimes led by people like Stalin, Tito, Mao, Pol Pot. Those regimes resulted in the suffering and the murder of millions. In this next slide, there's just a, a, a terrifying number of lives lost under the regimes of these dictators. This is from a book by um, Rummel called Lethal Politics and Death by Government. I mean, you know, I can't even do the maths. It's just a, a, a terrifying litany of, of 
of horrible murders and, and consequences, largely in the name of irreligion, often in the name of atheism. Um, an author called Mieck Pierce wrote a book called The Gods of War, Is Religion the Primary Cause of Violence? And he wrote this, the violence that Hitler, Mao and Stalin alone were engaged in flowed directly from their rejection of the God of Jesus Christ. Irreligion has proved far more lethal than religion ever was, said Pierce. So it's got to be said that irreligion is a major cause of war. It's probably a much more significant cause of war than religion. So, but no, you know, no one can really propose that we ban irreligion the way we're proposing that we ban religion. So, um, what else has caused wars? What else has caused wars? Religion, irreligion. Well, lots of things have caused wars. All sorts of things cause wars the whole time. Take politics. We're never going to ban politics. But politics causes war. I grew up um, living through the kind of troubles in Northern Ireland. When I was a kid, that was always in the news. You know, the bombs came over here, terrorists, all that kind of stuff. What's happening in there? You know, it was the Catholics and the Protestants, wasn't it? Religious war. That's what the press said. That's what the media told me. That's what I understood grew up with. I was actually raised as a Catholic. That's what our family were. We were raised in the, in the northwest, actually not far from Ireland. There was a quite a, you know, there's a regular passage of Irish over to Liverpool and back again. So I grew up being a Catholic and there was kind of Protestant Catholic thing going on. So that was very kind of upfront and central for us. But it's generally regarded now that there's nothing to do with religion. If you, if you kind of look, look, look at what's written now, people go, yeah, it was actually politics and nationalism. It just so happens that there were unionists and republicans. That was the kind of um, political angle to it. And it, it turns out that the Catholics tended to be in the republican camp and the Protestants tended to be in the unionist camp. And so religion was a handy marker. It was a handy way of kind of referencing. It was shorthand for this, for this whole conflict. You look at what brought an end to that war, the Good Friday Agreement. It, it's nothing to do with religion. No religion has been changed through the Good Friday Agreement. It's political, isn't it? So politics causes war. What about um, culture, tribal differences? Well, it caused war as well, all the time. I think the, probably the most notable one um, in the early 90s over in Rwanda, genocide, the, the um, Hutus and the Tutsis. 800,000 people killed in that, in that war. And it was all about tribes and culture clash. What about resources? That's a funny one, isn't it? Resources. You look at um, the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa. It's really rich in minerals, tin, diamonds. They are always at war. There's always someone coming in with guns going, we want all this. So it, 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 you know, those, those resources, you could say, are the cause of war. There's so many factors to consider when you look at this. It's a way complex, complex issue. So it would be good if we could sort of dig a little bit deeper and say, are there some themes that underlie all this? We've got irreligion, we've got religion, we've got resources, we've got politics, we've got nationalism, tribalism, culture, family, tribe, everything. Uh, what are the themes in here? What, what's really happening? You see, when we look at religion, when we see Christianity being used as an excuse for going to war, when we see in the Crusades, people were going out and raping and pillaging in the name of Jesus... When we see the Spanish Inquisition murdering people because they didn't adhere to a bunch of man-made rules. You think that's not religion as Jesus taught it? That's not right. 
That's not humble submission to God, is it? When it's twisted and manipulated and abused like that, that's when the problems start. You think of irreligion. Well, that list of names we looked at, you know, you look at those names and most people are going to go, yeah, that's a bunch of evil people. The evil would be at the root of that list, wouldn't it? Politics in itself, not a bad thing. But when somebody gets hold of it and twists it and abuses it and manipulates it and has their own agenda, their own selfishness, and they're using politics to get their own ends, that's when the problems start. Culture and tribe. Again, how can that be wrong in itself? It's when it's, it's, when it's twisted and people stoke up rivalries and cause factions. That's when the trouble starts. Resources, obviously, not wrong. But if I'm greedy, I'm consumed with greed, and all I want is to get my grubby little hands on, on those diamonds or that tin, that's when it all goes wrong. So if all these ideals are susceptible of being misused to promote violence, then the root cause has got to be deeper than any of those single ideals. We can't just pick one of them and say, that's it. There's some root cause underneath, isn't there, as we've seen. And when you stand back and you look at this, the common thread, I think, that clearly runs through this has got to be sin. It's, it's our sin. War is caused when sin is unchecked and given free reign. And that's well, that's well known, I think. I think. I think that's clear, isn't it, from those, from those um, points. There's um, a story that comes up. I don't know if it's true, but it's a good story, so I'm going to share it anyway. <laughs> um, the Times newspaper invited um, several prominent authors to contribute um, essays written responding to the title, What's Wrong with the World? And um, a number of people wrote in, and um, G.K. Chesterton replied to to the title, What's Wrong with the World? He wrote a letter. He said, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) Similarly, the Russian writer and philosopher Dostoevsky said, there is a war between heaven and hell, and the battleground is the hearts of men. That's where it's played out. They both understood what we know deep down, I think, that the problem isn't out there somewhere. The problem isn't religion. The problem isn't some ideology. The problem's within us. The problem is sin in our hearts. So what does scripture say about this? In Mark's gospel, Mark 7, Jesus says this. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. James, Jesus' brother, wrote this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Then again in Matthew, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Wow. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, it says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. 
It's this hard stuff to read, isn't it? And then, then the, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Oh, I find this stuff tough. I really do. It's our wicked hearts. It's our wicked hearts that are at fault here. Religion and ideology are simply the means through which we exercise the wickedness that's resident in our hearts. To think as many outspoken atheists do, that if we could somehow remove this impractical romantic idea of religion, then we'd somehow create a more peaceful society. I think it's to have a mistaken view of human nature. The testimony of human history says if we were to remove religion, then something else would come along and take its place as as the thing we'd go to war about. And that thing is never positive. So the theme that comes out when we look at the fundamental causes of war, when we we examine our hearts, when we look at scripture, the underlying theme, sin is the root of the problem. So what can we do about this? What can we do about this? If the fundamental problem is within us, then doesn't the solution need to be within us? It needs to be addressed in here. Interestingly, change from within... (laughs) Interestingly, that's exactly one of the things that Jesus came to bring us, change from within. Just to to look again at that scripture that I mentioned from Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand our hearts? Who made our hearts? Who sustains our hearts? Who keeps them beating, even now? The God of the Bible, the God who knit us together in our mother's wombs. The God whose very intervention gives us breath right now he understands our hearts he understands that we need a savior he sent jesus to save us from sin this very problem is what jesus came to address now there's the irony isn't it (laughs) we started by saying isn't religion the fundamental problem and we're going actually religion's the solution (laughs) i'm not sure that's what dawkins and dennett and harris and those guys want to hear but it's the truth Putting your faith in Jesus is the only answer to the problem of hatred, conflict, and war. Jesus isn't the source of the conflict. He's the solution to the conflict. 2 Corinthians says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You've been made anew. In Ephesians, it says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Wow. You get to put off your old self and put on a new self in the likeness of God. This is no small statement. Again, in um, Ephesians also, it says this, And you were dead in the trespass and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Wow. When we submit to Jesus, when we give our lives to him, when we invite Jesus into our lives, and we say, Jesus, come, make your home in me, we become the organisms through which he acts in the world. Wow. Imagine that. We become his fingers and his arms and his muscles and his sinews, his instruments here on earth. We truly become new creatures. 
C.S. Lewis, famous author C.S. Lewis, says the Christ life dwells within us. He says Christ life comes inside us. Apart from having this Christ life living in us, do you know, I think we're simply bankrupt when it comes to living virtuously in our relation with others. We, we know this, I know this personally, because left to my own devices, I don't live up to my moral standards. Now, don't get me wrong, my moral standards are way lower than God's moral standards. So if I don't even live up to my moral standards, I can't live up to his moral standards. And the harder I try, the more I fail. But hang on a second, you say, does that mean that all people who follow Jesus will fully reject violence, abuse, injustice, hatred for others? Is that right? I mean, surely some people who have had an authentic encounter with Jesus have then gone on to commit some of the dreadful atrocities that we were looking at. Well, I mean, perhaps you know someone, (laughs) perhaps you know someone who's claimed to follow Christ, but at the same time, their lives are clearly tarnished with dishonesty or hatred or hypocritical attitudes. Maybe you've even been on the receiving end of some of that. Well, I think some things are worth bearing in mind here. So it's got to be said, not all of us are going to be changed like that when we meet Jesus. For most of us, certainly in my life, I know there's a process to go through with God where he's making me more like Jesus. And I'm a slow learner, so that's taking time. It's called sanctification. It's a process that we get through. So don't expect people to be perfect right from the, right from the outset. I think as well it's worth bearing in mind, you know, let's not reject what Jesus promises to do in our lives simply because we see some others who claim Jesus has done something in their lives and yet they continue to live in their old lives. That would be foolish to reject Jesus' promises because somebody else doesn't live up to an expectation we've got. Let's not judge something by its abuse. And it is also worth bearing in mind that um, it may be God's transforming someone's life. It's just that maybe they're starting from quite a low base point and they're a work in progress and we're just getting a little snapshot into that. I think it's worth bearing in mind too that, you know, when we look at the Jesus of the Bible, when we see the only man who's ever lived with no moral flaws, when we see someone as perfect as Jesus, and we bear in mind we're called to follow him, and he's the one that promises to impart to us his perfect and pure and spotless and flawless life, he's the source of what's on offer. I think, I think that's, that's, that's pretty special. That's pretty, I'm not going to judge that promise by looking at a few people that are struggling with it. I'm going to judge that promise by looking at the source of it. I'm going to look at Jesus. You know, he was ultimately crucified for crimes he didn't commit. He was the object, but never the agent of violence. You know, instead of, instead of meeting violence with violence and anger with anger, he called those who followed him to turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Not let the sun go down on their anger. That's the kind of life he desires to put into each one of us. And when he does, our thinking will be transformed bit by bit to become more like his. That's why those who, that's why those who submit to and follow Jesus have felt, frankly, shock and outrage when they see others using violence as a means of achieving their own religious aims on earth. 
Violence is not the way of Jesus and it's not the way of his true followers. But Jesus went further than that. We look at Matthew 5 and Jesus says this, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, it's hard enough loving your, en- loving your neighbors, isn't it? It's hard enough. Jesus raises the bar and says, yeah, you've got to love your enemies. You've got to love those who persecute you. Wow, how are we going to do that? <sighs> Thank goodness we've got a new creation living inside us. Jesus sets the bar high, but then he empowers us to live the life that he would have us live. In Luke's gospel, we find the account of someone asking Jesus, all right, Jesus, so you say love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? I want to know who my neighbor is so I can love them. And Jesus says, ah, well, listen to this story. And he tells the story of the good Samaritan, which we all know. And the point about the story isn't so much you can figure out who are your neighbors and then you can love them. It's to be a neighbor to everybody, particularly those people who aren't in your little particular in-group, particular people that are kind of outside of the circles you move in. And then Jesus, being perfect and flawless as he is, provides wonderful illustrations of doing just that throughout scripture. So just a little flyby. In Matthew 8, he heals a leper. Now lepers considered unclean, outcast from society. Jesus hanging around with lepers and healing them. Matthew 9, he heals a woman with a discharge of blood. Again, she would have been considered cast out of society, unclean. Matthew 21, Jesus is hanging around with tax collectors and prostitutes. You know, these aren't the the, the cream of society, rejected by society. That's who Jesus hangs out with. Luke 15, he's accused. They say, that Jesus, he hangs around with sinners and eats with them. Exactly, exactly. The people got it. They were accusing him as if it was something something to be ashamed of. And Jesus is going, that's why I came. I came to reach out to these groups that are marginalized in society. Amazing. What a savior. What a God. And this is the life he wants to impart to us. That's what's on offer here this morning. (laughs) He sets the bar high and then gives us his grace, which is sufficient. He gives us all we need. 1 Peter 1.14 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And you think, oh my goodness. I've got to be holy. I don't know who feels holy this morning. That's a, that's a big ask of anybody, I think. You've got to be holy. How am I going to be holy? God is holy. I'm just me. How can I be holy? You read on. In 2 Peter, it says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he says, be holy. And then he says, I'm going to grant you all things that pertain to godliness. I'm going to give you what you need to live out that holy life. So it's not just like some rule that you've got to obey and you're just like powerless to obey. I've got to be holy? That's an awesome challenge. No, no. I'm going to give you all things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm going to fully equip you. Jesus calls us to follow him. He models a perfect life. He calls us to be holy and then fully equips us to be more and more like him. Just amazing stuff. Amazing. Now, just as we kind of move to a close now, it's got to be said, even with the influence of true religion, 
even when Christians are truly submitted to Jesus, we're never going to see peace in this current age, which is a sad truth. There's never going to be a day without conflict somewhere in the world. Why? Because the only cure is Jesus' return, the Prince of Peace, when he comes back. When he returns, as he's promised, he'll, he'll draw this current age to a close and establish eternal peace. It says this in Isaiah. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That is the end of war. That's the end of war. We can, we, can, we can foresee that. We can herald that in, in our lives. But the end of war will only happen when Jesus returns. And he is returning. He's the only solution to the root cause of war. Wow. <laughs> so, true religion then, to submit to God of the Bible to be made a new creation by him, to be filled with the Christ life, to be granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's what's on offer this morning. That's what's on offer. That's what's available to us. And that's the solution to the problem of sin, the cause of war. So we're going we're gonna to respond now. If we can get the band back, that would be brilliant. Um, when I was preparing, I was praying. I was saying, God, this is a tough subject to talk about. And... Um, I just, it would be great if this could land in our hearts in a kind of real way. So I was praying and I felt God say, there's, there's a number of sorts of people here who could, God really wants to speak to actually this morning. So here's, here's what I, th- I think I heard God say. Um, first of all, if you're a Christian here this morning, you may just be saying, I, w- I need more equipping from God. I want to be able to, to live a more godly life. It's that simple. Um, nothing specific, just I just need to be able to live a more godly life. So why don't you come down the front here, talk to the guys in the prayer team over here, and um, pray with them maybe, and together you can ask God for more equipping for you to live that more godly life. So that's one, um, one thing I felt God say. The other thing I felt God say was, you may be facing a very specific issue. And as I've been talking, you think, I'm really struggling to live that godly life in this particular issue. And I think, I think, again, it would be great to come down the front, chat to the prayer team, chat through that issue, pray with them to God, ask God to help you in that particular issue to live a more godly life. And then the third thing I felt God saying was, you know, if you're someone that's never taken that step of faith to say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Come into my life. Make me into a new creation. Wow. Again, why don't you come down and chat to the prayer team? You can pray and you can submit your life to Jesus today. He can make you a new creation today. You can walk out of here a new creation. Wow, so much more equipped to live more and more like Jesus. Those things that have been frustrating you, those things you can't break out of. Well, if you live more and more like Jesus, that's where the solution's going to come. And you can walk out of here today with that. There's nothing stopping you becoming a new creation today. So I'm going to pray and then the band's going to lead us and then as the band's playing or even after the meeting you can just make your way down to these guys here and pray with them okay let me pray Lord I just want to thank you that um, you you are the solution to the problem of sin which is the root cause of war Lord it sounds so simple but it's so profound we're so grateful Lord 
We're so grateful that you, you make that solution available for us. And we want to say, we want to be those that um, are transformed by you on the inside. We want to be those that live, have this new Christ life in us. We want to be new creations in you. We want to see in our immediate surroundings the gospel going out and your glory and your peace going out to those around us, Lord. And we want to see that modelled out the whole earth, Lord. We want to see your kingdom come. That's what it means for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And I want to pray for folks this morning, Lord, that you need to do business with, Lord, that you want to speak with and engage with. I pray there'd be courage in this room this morning to come face to face with you and do do business with you this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Should we stand? We're going to sing a song now that focuses on the cross and that's where Jesus did everything that Paul's been saying for us that's how we connect with him today so let's sing this together when I survey the wondrous cross on which the of glory die my rich you 